Okay. Good morning. Nice to see you. Nice to be invited here. Um, secretly, I've been here for the last two Sundays, spying on you. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, I, I really enjoyed the warm welcome that um, I've received every week from from everyone that's been here. And it's, um, as I said earlier, Richard's been a great blessing in my life. And um, it's a real privilege um, to be here. So thank you. Thank you to the elders for um, allowing me to be here. Um, as you know, um, we are at the beginning of the Bible. And we are just like a few pages in. Um, the sermon series uh, concerns the life of Abraham or Abraham, as we know, um, we found out a couple of weeks ago that he was called by God um, to leave his country and his people, and that he received a, a promise from God that somehow he would become a great nation, a new land, and a, and a great blessing to others. And then last week, when we were here together, we learned that he started off well, and then he made some wrong choices, and... Um, by the way, what a, what a bad choice he made in Egypt to um, decide to tell lies and effectively trick Pharaoh and to say, this woman isn't my wife, she's my sister. Have you ever, have you ever messed up at that level? Hopefully not. Um, but this is, the, this is the person that we're dealing with. But with God's help, he's able to leave Egypt in one piece not only just does he leave in, you know, safe, but he's blessed with even more sheep, even more cattle, even more servants. And as Nikki um, read beautifully for us, we now pick the account up um, at the beginning of 13. So I'm just going to take a moment to pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, please would you be with me? May the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, for you are our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, Richard kindly um, invited me to preach, and he assigned this chapter, Genesis 13. And as I quickly read it, as soon as I got the WhatsApp, you quickly go and you're like, oh great, I can't wait to do this. I quickly read it, and I confessed that I was actually somewhat disappointed. Uh, no great battles, no great scandal, no drama, just two men who go their separate ways, the end. But when I prayed and I prayed, I discovered that there's a lot in it. Did you get it? <laughs> Did you get it? <laughs> There's a lot. Oh, did you get it? Lot. So what do we know to, so far about these two men who eventually separate? We learn that Abraham is the uncle and Lot is his nephew. Abraham is the one to whom the promise was given. But both of them are called out of Ur. Or Ur. I hope you understand my accent. Both enter Canaan. Both enter uh, Egypt, both are delivered out of Egypt, both are back in the land of Canaan, and both are blessed by God because when we meet them, they are absolutely loaded. Lots of sheep, lots of servants. 
they're doing really well. But maybe as you tracked along as the passage was read, you will see that the two men actually have two different agendas. One is seeking a better relationship with the Lord, and one is seeking a better life for himself. We begin with Abraham leading this massive caravan. What, what site would that have been? All these people, nomadic people, going across the land. We begin, they're heading back to the Negev, Negev to the place between Bethel and Ai. It's interesting that they're go, he's going backwards. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought things were going well between you and the Lord, only to spectacularly mess up? What did you do next, if that's the case? Well, here in these first four verses, we see Abraham literally retracing his steps, going back the same journey of faith, making his way, to the, making his way back to the places where he worshipped and spoke with God. And this leads me to my first encouragement that I'd like to share with you today in the first few verses. Faith flourishes when we increase our awareness of the grace of God. Faith flourishes when we take time to increase our awareness of the grace of God. We see Abraham retracing his life before um, Egypt. You see it? It's incredible. Literally the same places. He's remembering the promise. He's remembering the goodness of God. He, he's, it's a very purposeful action as he makes his way back. Let me ask you a question. How often do we stop to consider how far God has brought us? Even in this last year or so in the pandemic, how has God been kind to you, been good to you in the various lockdowns? How often do we stop to remember his goodness? And when we do, how humbling and how sweet it is. Don't, don't let's rush past this. Is this part of your life of faith? Is this a rhythm that you've built into your life to stop long enough to notice the evidences of his grace? Because there, there will be many, many. A few weeks ago, a group of uh, friends and I, we uh, we're considering what it means to be church and if it's the Lord's will, explore church planting. And we were in a room, there was um, a room, I don't know, about 10 people, different ages, different nationalities. And when, we, when someone comes along, we, we have a practice where we, we invite one another to retell our story, a bit like I did a short while ago, with God. But not just one person, we all do it. And it never, ever gets boring. So we're sitting in this room in a big circle. And as I said, all these different people born in different countries, different nationalities, different ages. And time after time, we'd hear these stories of life going in the wrong direction at different stages. But God. But God entered. And there was story after story when people looked back that God's hand was upon them, that his spirit was calling them many years before. Stories of people growing up in homes where there was a Bible 
where, where people talked about it but weren't really sure about it. Pe- people growing up remembering their parents talking to them as eight-year-old children about God and then nothing really happening. Uh, old prayer books they remembered from their childhood that were there that somebody, an aunt or an uncle, had gifted them. But then they went their own way. But God was not finished. And time after time, I wish I could recount it all to you if I had the the time. We just heard stories of God's grace, his intervention, his goodness, his kindness. And this room would be exactly the same for those of you who know and love the Lord. It was like being in God's trophy room, his trophy cabinet. All these different stories. And I was just struck by how how can God be at work in so many different places? It's so many different stages of life. Because he's good. And he's glorious. And of course, when we stop long enough to consider his grace, there is only one response, and that is worship. And what do we see Abraham do in this passage again? He's a builder. He builds altars. But unlike the builders in the previous chapters of Babel, he builds not to glorify himself, but to glorify God. He establishes the worship of Lord in each of these different locations. He's actively participating in the promises over his life. All is good until we get to verse 5 and 7. There's a problem. There's a division in the camp. The herdsmen think there's not enough room anymore to accommodate all these riches, all this livestock, all these people. Quarreling has broken out. And it's clear that these two groups are no longer able to stay together. Before we consider what happens next, put yourself in Abraham's position. Life is going well with the Lord. But all of a sudden, left field, something comes along to disrupt. How would you respond? You see, he believes in God's promise that a great nation is coming through him. He has no son, and Lot is his only male relative. But it's looking like Lot and his team want to leave. (laughs) If that was me, I'd be saying, hold on. Where do you think you're going? Time out. No way. This isn't happening. But he doesn't. If that was me, I would be totally playing patriarchy top trumps. I would be laying down my card and said, it's me that God give the promise to. You need to stay. But no. Abraham exercises great faith. He opens his hands and is prepared to let Lot go. Why would he do that? That leads me to my second encouragement. In verses 8 and 9, we see that faith flourishes when we practice trusting in the sovereignty of God. Faith flourishes when we practice trusting in the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by the sovereignty of God? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Well, it's just this. 
He is Lord over all creation. He alone has absolute authority. He alone is unrestricted in his powers. His will is never thwarted. Everything happens. Everything happens according to his eternal plan. In short, he is the ultimate. He is the only one in charge. And Abraham's action here, letting go, is radically countercultural. The head of the family doesn't give way to the younger or the less important younger man. Not only does he permit Lot to go, but he decides to let Lot choose. This is ridiculous. This doesn't happen. But you know what that's like, right? You know when you're on fire for God, it looks very different to what the rest of the world is saying to us. And Abraham is leading the way. Counter-cultural behavior. Abraham, this action shows great trust and great faith in the Lord. It would have been painful, would it not, to see a relative walk away. Don't forget he's left the rest of his family before that. And now Lot wants to go. It would have been a painful thing to watch someone that he loved leave. And there was also a financial implication. But incredibly, incredibly, this decision of Abraham's manages to honor God and maintain a relationship with Lot as we see going forward. Abraham's decision making went like this. God first. Family second. Wealth last. God first, family second, wealth last. What a contrast. But do you see it? Do you see that Abraham demonstrated that he loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and that he loved Lot, his neighbor, as himself? Do you see it? In contrast, Lot's decision-making is the complete opposite of his uncle's. Lot is wealth first, family second. And God, do you see anything in this text about God from Lot's side? Didn't he appreciate how his life had been super blessed and great when he was in the company of Abraham who was pursuing God? come? What was it that Abraham could see with his eyes of faith that Lot could not? What is it? What, What does he see? If your Bible is open, you can look across to the beginning of chapter 12. Let me ask you, who is it that calls Abraham? Who? Who calls Abraham? God. Who's going to make him into a great nation? God. Who's going to make his name great? God. Who's going to bless him? Who? God. Who's going to curse those that curse him? God. Who took care of him and his family 
when they messed up in Egypt? God. To Abraham, there is nothing greater or more glorious than his relationship with God. Lot is just not in that place. It's sad, but it's the truth. And that leads me to my third point. Not an encouragement, but a reality. Faith flounders when we settle for less than the glory of God. Faith flounders when we settle for less than the glory of God. Abraham's heart is enraptured, is full with the clarity of who God is and what he's doing. But Lot is not looking in that direction. If you look through verses 10 to 13, Lot, immediately given the choice, is out scoping the area. He's looking to what he can do next. Once given this opportunity, he wastes no time in getting on with the task. He doesn't build an altar. He doesn't call on the name of the Lord. He's too busy for worship. He has no time to consider anything else other than himself. He just wants to get on with it. Does that sound familiar? Can you relate to that? No time busying ourselves, focusing on the wrong thing. I know what that's like. Just getting on with it, not taking time to think or stop or consider the Lord or consider what's best. Just doing, doing. And, and verse 10, verse 10 is particularly insightful in this chapter. We learn that Lot is thinking of himself. He is looking for the well-watered land. Well, that's kind of a practical thing. You say, okay, he's trying to make sure his flocks and his people will flourish and where he will prosper. <laughs> this just struck me literally. Um, Lot is the example of the folly of thinking the grass is greener on the other side. His mind is cast back to Egypt. He has dreams possibly of the grandeur of Egypt when they had that encounter with Pharaoh and the mighty Pharaoh had blessed them with so many belongings and things to go on their way. It's interesting, isn't it? That it's here that the, that the Lord, our God, has seen fit to include it like the land of Egypt. His, his eyes are tickled. He's swayed into thinking of greatness that comes from man and not from God. And then we have this incredible, insightful, laser precision, few words. He's looking for somewhere like the garden of the Lord. He's off in pursuit of a place that to him looked like the garden of the Lord, like Eden, like Eden. It's only a few chapters ago. It's how the book begins, doesn't it? He's off in search of paradise. Who doesn't want some of that? There used to be bounty ads for that, didn't there? In search of paradise, if you're old. 
who doesn't want some of that? Who doesn't want that idyllic place? I don't know about you, but I'm in my 50s now, and there's something about gardens that becomes more attractive the older you get. Oh, look, you're laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. What did you do in your holiday? Oh, we went and looked at some lovely gardens. (laughs) And it's great. And you join the National Trust, and you look at gardens. Because our hearts, there's something within our hearts that desires that beauty. We want that paradise. Uh, The Cambridge English Dictionary says, Paradise is a place or condition of great happiness where everything is exactly as you would like it to be. Or as the world tells us today, find your happy place. You deserve it. Find your happy place. Go to your happy place. After yesterday, my happy place would be anywhere that Man United would win a football game, if you know anything about football. But of course, the paradise of the Lord is not the paradise of man, right? If you were to go back with me to the beginning of this book, you would see that in Eden, it was great for a while. Adam and Eve, humanity had the perfect Shalom, perfect, peaceful relationship with God. And it was glorious. It was perfect. You know, we were part like humanity. We had value and worth in the garden. We had purpose. We walk with God. Hallelujah. Naked, no shame. Great. But then... Chapter 3, Genesis, I'm sure you've heard it. If not, I'll tell you. A bit like Lot, we thought we knew better. We, humanity thinks, oh, I, I think, yeah, God, that's all great, but I, I might know a better way to do this. And we call that the fall, and we soon realize that uh, we can't live without God, and we're no longer in the garden of the Lord We've lost that perfect peace with God. We've lost that assurance of knowing where we should be and what we needed to do. Where we should be and what we needed to do. Isn't it interesting, therefore, that Abraham's promise talks about a place where he should be. And this truth, this reality of not being in the garden is significant today because if you look around you in the world, humanity still doesn't really know what its purpose is or where it should be. If you look around you, people are toiling and striving everywhere to find paradise, striving and toiling and working to get back to the garden of the Lord. The longing for a life that is better than this never leaves us. That's where I was. That's where I was before I went on the Alpha course, before I met Jesus. I was striving, longing, something better than this. Surely there's more to life than this. Looking for a paradise. And the truth is, I would suggest, The paradise, that longing for it, is hardwired into our very being. So, of course, Lot is a long way off, but he's on his way, seeking paradise in his own strength and in his own terms. 
the eyes of his heart are tempted by what he thinks is a better life. No time for worship. No time for prayer. No time for seeking the counsel of his friends in faith. How must Abraham have felt? Some of us will know. Have you ever watched somebody you love go in the opposite direction? Decide to think they know better than than God? And off they go? It's a tragic thing. It's one of the most painful and tragic things you'll ever witness. So, though we won't go fully into it, what is the result of Lot's decision-making? Well, God gives us a glimpse in this chapter. In verse 13, we learn that Lot heads off to be in the cities of the plain near a place called Sodom. And we are told that this place is wicked and the people there are sinning greatly against the Lord. What he doesn't know, and I'm, I don't want to go too far into, the, into what's coming, his decision to seek the better life rather than seeking a better relationship with God has devastating consequences for his family. You'll have to come back to find out more. But we continue in, in verse 14. Um, the Lord and Abraham are back together. The Lord is speaking to Abraham. And surprise, guess what? It turns out that Abraham's decision to trust in the sovereignty of the Lord was a good one. Why? Because there's so much land. As far as the eye can see. I love when we trust in the Lord that he gives us more than. Don't you? That he gives us more than we need. In verses 14 and 15, God reveals to Abraham that all the land that he can see from the north to the south, from the east to the west, will be for him and his offspring forever. There would have been enough land there for a lot too. When we seek God first, and put our trust in him, there's always enough. And that's kind of my last encouragement. Faith flourishes when we enjoy the peace found in the promises of God. Faith flourishes when we enjoy peace found in the promises of God. And you just get a sense of it. After this warning that Abraham, or Lot is going in the wrong direction, this chapter ends with Abraham and his wife enjoying this peace. I, I don't know what it looks like to set up home near the great trees of Mamre, but it sounds awesome to me. Sounds idyllic to me. Sounds like a taste of the garden to me. But it's not just that. We have this sort of update on the promise. He reaffirms, God reaffirms to Abraham this promise to make him into a great nation and look at the language i will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if any how can you even count dust god wins right that's the analogy of all analogies i'm going to blow your mind with how many descendants are going to come from you that's outrageous abraham's children his descendants, his offspring 
will number beyond our ability to even count or comprehend. Wow. Wow. That's a good place to end for Abraham at this point, isn't it? He'd be just like, yeah, thank you, Lord. Wow. But what about Lot? Just like elsewhere in Genesis, the author, the Holy Spirit, God frequently gives us two people to compare and contrast. Um, Abraham and Lot, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and Judah, Isaac and Ishmael. And there's a purpose, of course, behind it. And as this, we bring this chapter to a close, I would love to say that having considered and prayed and looked at this um, passage for the last few weeks, I would love to tell you I'm so much like Abraham. But the truth is, I identify with Lot. I know what it's like to go off in search of my own version of paradise. Whether that be, in the, as I said earlier, in the, in the pursuit of money, position, better jobs, better employment, better relationships. And each time I know what it's like to discover that it was only temporary at best that that joy in finding those things did not last long. And that even worse than that, there was often painful consequences for myself and others that I loved when I settled for less than what God has to offer. When I settled less for God and His glory. You see, the truth is, there is no lasting paradise without the eternal presence of God. There is no lasting paradise without the eternal presence of God. The paradise that humanity is longing for is not entered by its achievements, no matter how noble you or others might consider them to be. The lasting paradise that humanity needs is only entered into by faith. We're all longing for the garden. We're all longing for paradise. Here's some good news. The price for the entry has already been paid. It's already been paid. How glorious is God in the fulfillment of his promises as we look forward later in this book, in his word, as we meet Jesus, the seed of Adam, hanging on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin. He turns to the repentant thief. And what does he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. In his last breath, Jesus is fulfilling the promise 
It's only through Jesus that we enter the garden of the Lord, isn't it? He makes it so clear. When you get through the gospel, he stands and says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. But that's his day job. That's what he yearns to do. That's what he wants to do. He meets people on trains on the way into London. And many other stories in this room. He longs for us to be reunited in the garden. He longs for us to enjoy the glory of God, the grace of God, to trust in the sovereignty of God. And the good news is that everything that was promised is fulfilled because of the Lord Jesus. We start at the beginning, but if you get to the end of the book, to the very last chapter, we begin in a garden in the Bible and you know we end in a garden. Because of the Lord Jesus, John tells us in Revelation 22, the nations will no longer be divided. It's amazing. That's amazing. Perfect unity in the garden of the Lord because of the Lord Jesus. We also learn that the land is no longer cursed. Oh, Kingfisher, I, I, I want to leave you with the knowledge of the great blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus. Paul captures this perfectly. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, he, sh- he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Praise be to that promise, that God who promised Abraham. Praise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. My Bible says with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, with everything that we need. And I'll summarize it. If you read the rest of that chapter in your own time, we learn the blessings of being chosen, predestined, loved, redeemed, forgiven, Lavished with grace. Chosen, predestined, love, redeemed, forgiven, and lavished with grace. Don't settle for less than the glory of the Lord. Can I pray? We'll finish there. Heavenly Father, thank you that every word, every sentence contained within this book, the Bible, is for our good and for your glory. There's no wasted sentences, no wasted paragraphs. Your glory shines from every letter. And I pray that as we leave here today, we would think again about your grace. I I pray that over this church that Uh, myself and they would consider the testimony of grace that throughout this last year and throughout their lives 
how good you've been to them. And that that would lead to much rejoicing, that after this covenant renewal, that this church would be overflowing in worship. And I do pray, Lord, for anyone who maybe doesn't yet know you, that they would hear the message that there's no need for striving, that you're ready to welcome them in to the garden of the Lord and to enjoy him forever. Amen.